This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Hurricane Issa Ias. Are you sick of all the constant Zoom calls this year? Lose power and internet through Hurricane Issa Ias today. Welcome to episode 13 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today we're talking about salmon, a fish so infuriating it made Gordon Ramsay do this. Could you just explain to me what it is? Salmon roast on a plank of cedar. I think you're a plank. Gordon, at least taste the guy's dish before insulting him. Seriously, Hell's Kitchen is just turning into, what did you make? Jambalaya. Oh yeah? Well, you're jambalaya. I mean, I appreciate the show trying to break into the five-year-old British bully market, but come on. If you can believe it, wild salmon actually faces more threats than Gordon Ramsay pushing it on the ground and yanking its pigtails. In fact, just two weeks ago, on July 24th, the Alaskan wild salmon industry was dealt a catastrophic blow. A hot debate is brewing in Alaska these days over what is worth more, the gold in the ground, of the gold in the water. A record 60 million salmon surged through the state's Bristol Bay last month. Some 30 million were caught and will feed half of the world's demand. But near the headwaters of Bristol Bay, the Canadian mining company Northern Dynasty has found what they think could be the biggest gold and copper mine in the world. And if they dig it, the side effects could be toxic. Really? I thought Northern Dynasty was Sweden's grinder name. But it's true. Even though, according to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the pebble mine would permanently destroy 2,200 acres of wetlands and water and 105 miles of streams hosting the world's largest sockeye salmon industry valued at $1.4 billion, the Corps concluded two weeks ago that the pebble mine would not pose serious environmental risks and would not be expected to have a measurable effect on fish numbers. And that's pretty inconsistent. That's like saying even though Oscar Pistorius murdered his girlfriend, he would not be expected to have a measurable effect on Oscar Pistorius's girlfriends. But we won't be talking about the pebble mine today because as devastating as it could be for future salmon and for nearby residents in Alaska, wild salmon populations today are already dwindling for a multitude of other reasons which brings disastrous consequences for the environment, the economy, and the livelihoods of many fishermen and Native American populations. So today, we're going to break down what threats wild salmon face and what we can do to conserve wild salmon and make sure it doesn't permanently leave our dinner plates. But first, let's talk about the life cycle of wild salmon. Wild salmon babies, called fry, are born in freshwater streams and rivers, and after a few months to a few years, they swim thousands of miles out to the ocean where there's more food, allowing them to grow. After salmon spend a few years in the ocean growing and building up energy stores, they return to freshwater to lay their eggs. But not just any freshwater, salmon actually return to the exact spot they were born. There are thousands of rivers flowing into the sea, and the salmon have to find the particular one that will lead them to their birthplace. They have a truly extraordinary sense of smell. They can distinguish a single drop from their home river amongst 8 million liters of seawater. It's amazing! Salmon memorize every smell on their journey out to sea so they can retrace those smells on their way back to find the exact patch of gravel where they were born. 
Their sense of smell is almost as good as my dog's when I come home from hanging out with a different dog. Even if I didn't pet the other dog, I come home and while they're shooting daggers at me like, you cheated on me? And with a bulldog? You're sick. The journey home for salmon isn't easy. After the switch from salt water back to fresh water, the salmon can no longer eat or drink, so they're left only with the stored energy in their bodies, and they need that energy. First off, they're swimming upstream. They're also hunted by bears, dolphins, seals, and dozens more species. Come summertime, the water level is so low that they often can't swim and have to crouch down like a sumo wrestler and try to stay submerged so they can breathe. And then when they get further upstream, they face their biggest challenge, waterfalls. The falls are blocking the salmon's path. There's only one way to get around them, and that is to go over them. It's a game of persistence and luck. Launching themselves above the sill requires formidable acceleration. Their muscles are adapted for short, sharp bursts of energy. Leaps can cover more than three meters. And although they fail time after time, their desire to push on is so strong they never give up. They're absolutely incredible! A salmon is an Olympic swimmer, Olympic high jumper, and Olympic security dog that sniffs out Justin Gatlin's performance-enhancing drugs all wrapped up into one. Salmon quite literally leap out of the water and wag their fins to accelerate into the air to try to get back over the waterfalls they once swam down. These jumps are the equivalent of a human having to jump over a four-story building. And of course, as the salmon try to leap back above the falls, bears just stand at the top and snatch them out of the air. And I know the bears need their food too, and it's all part of the circle of life, but after hearing these salmon traverse challenge after challenge to get back home to lay eggs, all I can say to the bears is... I think you're a plank. So salmon have a pretty tough time living their life and getting home to spawn, which to me makes it even more sobering that humans make it a hell of a lot harder. Humans have several impacts, most of which can be categorized under what some refer to as the four H's. The first H is harvesting. Every fisherman wants to catch as many fish as possible since that's what will get them the most money. But if every fisherman catches as many as they can, then there won't be enough fish left to spawn and provide for future fish. So we've actually created policies to ensure no one catches too many, but actually enforcing them is really challenging. Salmon's migration pattern means they traverse state and international boundaries, so a lot of self-interested states and countries have to cooperate with each other, making fishery management almost as complicated as the rules to Wheel of Fortune. Seriously, I thought it was just hangman on crack, but you watch the show now, and there's toss-ups, triple toss-ups, wild cards, gift tags, mystery wedges, free play wedges, plus the puzzles themselves have the acrostics and before and afters, 
I mean, you'd think America's game would be something simple, like how many burgers can you eat while beating up a Walmart greeter who told you to put on a mask. The amount of salmon in a river each year also varies considerably. Researchers are getting better at creating models for how many fish can be harvested without over-harvesting, but there's also a lot more variation now due to human-caused threats, which brings us to the second H, hydroelectric dams. Anything that blocks a river, like a dam does, limit their access to part of the world that they need to complete their life cycle. That was University of Washington professor David Montgomery, and he's absolutely right. Young salmon can sometimes make their way down a dam, though not always, but it's nearly impossible for a salmon to get back up one. Dams range from 15 to 150 meters tall. Even the salmon's name LeBron can't jump that. Dams also slow down rivers, which creates warm water pools that are ideal for salmon predators, exposes salmon to high temperatures and diseases, and delays salmon migration. Because of all of this, the salmon dies before they can get home and lay eggs. And that's not just bad for the salmon, that's bad for the entire ecosystem. When salmon leave their native streams, they're little fish. When they come back a couple years later, they're huge. They put on like 90%, 95% of their body mass in the marine environment. And what that essentially means is that a large fish run, the kind of fish runs we had historically in the Northwest, you can view as a nitrogen pump that's basically scavenging food out of the oceans and bringing it back on land. It feeds the bugs, the trees in the forest, they feed the eagles, they feed the bears, essentially fertilizing their own world. Exactly. Salmon transport nutrients from the ocean to the rivers and streams, which are in dire need of them. That's why salmon are referred to by biologists as a keystone species, or a species that single-handedly holds together an entire ecosystem. Without salmon, these freshwater ecosystems and the surrounding land often extending into our forests would be absolutely starved, and dams prevent the transport of those nutrients. In the late 19th century, people didn't see how dams affected the entire ecosystem since the word ecosystem didn't actually exist until 1935, but we did start to observe how dams threatened salmon. So we came up with an idea to fix it. But like taking the batteries out of the smoke detector to replace the dead batteries in the TV remote, our fix created a whole other problem, which brings us to the third H, hatcheries. The idea of the hatchery was to artificially farm salmon downstream from the dam and make sure there weren't natural predators at the hatchery so the salmon could swim to the ocean, grow up, and then swim back to the hatchery to be caught for humans. And they truly thought at the time that this would protect salmon populations, so I don't blame them for trying. But unfortunately, it didn't. The use of hatcheries was a promise that you could have salmon and you could also have the benefits of developing the river. Put that next to the fact that 40% of the salmon are extinct in their historic range and the rest are protected by the Endangered Species Act. You would have to say that that story didn't protect the things that we value, the salmon. So what went wrong? Well, while wild salmon have a hard life, hatchery salmon or farmed salmon have a really easy life. They're protected from predators as eggs and as fry, and they get their food delivered to them. It's basically comparing hunter-gatherers to a stoner ordering Domino's at 3 a.m. and getting a second pizza free because the driver forgot the dipping sauce. And just like a human who's been coddled for their whole childhood, hatchery salmon have one thing on their mind, escaping and having as much sex as humanly possible. 
sorry, salmonly possible. So the hatchery salmon reproduced with the wild salmon, and those wild salmon genes that evolved over years and years to dodge bears and hop waterfalls are diluted. The new fry can't survive in the wild. And as a result, the wild salmon population plummets. Less wild salmon and more hatchery salmon hurt the entire ecosystem by reducing food for predators and nutrient deposits upstream, and could lead to the extinction of some wild salmon species after too much interbreeding. And it also hurts humans. People generally agree that wild salmon is both leaner and tastier than farmed salmon, and it's more valuable, leading to more revenue for the fishermen who catch them. Salmon hatcheries also have countless environmental consequences of their own, which brings us to the fourth H, habitat destruction. Poorly planned hatcheries can cause rivers to warm up and slow down, disrupting wild salmon's migration patterns, and that's just one of many threats. The freshwater environments are threatened by pollution from urban, industrial, and agricultural chemical runoff, erosion from logging which covers and suffocates salmon eggs, and as we mentioned a few episodes ago, gypsy moth poop. Projects like the Pebble Mine threaten to disrupt salmon habitats even more. And in addition to all of these threats, we are already seeing the impacts of one more, climate change. More carbon dioxide in the atmosphere also causes ocean acidification. This kills the organisms that salmon feed on. Scientists at the University of Washington and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration say that increased carbon dioxide in the water makes it much more difficult for young coho salmon to be able to smell. This leaves the fish unable to feed or to swim upstream to spawn. That's right! Climate change is threatening salmon's food supply. And beyond that, salmon are cold water fish. They spend their entire lives in a perpetual ice bucket challenge. So with waters warming, salmon are drifting north, and that creates a double whammy for fisheries in areas such as Washington, Oregon, and Northern California. The salmon populations are declining, and the salmon that do exist are leaving. According to the Wild Salmon Center, Pacific salmon fuel a $3 billion industry which supports tens of thousands of local jobs and communities along the coast. But due to these declines, fishermen are losing jobs, and the economies in these states are taking a massive hit. Salmon dying off, being diluted with farmed salmon, and migrating away from states like Washington threatens not just the environment and economy, but also the legal rights and livelihoods of Native American tribes. And those rights actually date back to the original Medicine Creek Treaty of 1854. In 1854, Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens made treaties with all the Indians in Washington. The Indians gave up all claims to the land and the territory except for special areas reserved to them. In return, they were to receive payments and were promised that they and their descendants would always have the right to fish in their usual and accustomed grounds. Now, obviously these treaties with indigenous tribes from the 1800s aren't particularly fair, since the United States was more than willing to violently strip away any land they wanted. And that makes it even more striking just how monumental salmon was to the culture of these tribes. The one thing they insisted on over all else was the right to fish. And as imbalanced as this treaty was, the state of Washington still didn't hold up their end of the bargain. There was Don McLeod, L. Bridges, Herman John, Billy Frank, Nugie Couts, Jack McLeod. There were six of them that went to jail and they went to jail to prove a point. And then the rest of us stood out there and starved while all of our husbands was in jail and all of our equipment and all of our nets were taken from us. 
they returned a few, but not enough. That it was beginning to come together that our treaty rights were being abused. And what we had signed up for wasn't being given to us. That was Georgiana Coutts, a member of the Nisqually tribe and the wife of Nugent Coutts, who, along with five others, was arrested for fishing salmon on the Nisqually River. The state of Washington had begun stirring up the false sentiment that the decline in salmon populations was not due to the reasons we just discussed, but due to Native Americans, and began imposing regulations on them that blatantly violated the 1854 treaty. But the Native Americans fought back, and in 1974, Judge George Hugo Bolt from a district court in Washington ruled that Native Americans in Washington were to be co-managers of the salmon population and had the right to a 50-50 split with the non-native fisheries. But today, tribes like the Nisqually in Washington are facing smaller and smaller yields as salmon populations disappear in Washington due to dams, hatcheries, and habitat destruction that are not at all the Native Americans' fault. Their legal right to salmon that they fought for for so long is becoming obsolete. If we look further north to Alaska, indigenous and non-indigenous people see salmon as one of the only food sources available. Not a lot else swims up to Alaska because, well, there's not much to do up there. I mean, I hear Anchorage is nice, but they don't even have a football team. But since transporting food and other goods to Alaska is challenging and expensive, Alaskans face some pretty exorbitant grocery store prices. So we're going to make some quick rounds through this grocery store just to share some prices of uh, products in a very remote Alaskan village. 12 pack of soda is $12.95. Bag of Tostitos tortilla chips on sale for $10.74. Now this is fairly reasonably priced, I think. You can get a pack of condoms for $13. And it's a pleasure pack. $13 for a pack of condoms? If you go to Walmart around here, you can get a pack of diapers for $4 less than that. And of all the reasons to want a baby, it's cheaper should not be one of them. The only good reasons to have a baby are, I like cleaning up vomit, I need an excuse to go to Chuck E. Cheese, and I don't want my brother Scar to become king and cede my kingdom to a bunch of psychotic hyenas. Given these high prices, you can see why a local food source like salmon is absolutely essential for Alaskans to have affordable food. So where do we go from here? Well, since there's a lot of issues threatening salmon, there's also a lot to fix. But let's start with my absolute favorite solution. With mankind damming and controlling rivers, fewer salmon are making it back to their home waters to reproduce. But a device called the salmon cannon, that's not a joke, can now help get more fish over water barriers while speeding up the process of separating the wild from the hatched. Basically, the salmon swims into the cannon and there's a computer system that scans the fish and if it's a salmon, it will be launched over the dam and onto the next part of the river where they can continue their journey home. Now, a lot of people had questions when the salmon cannon first went viral, like, is this real and can I ride it and does it actually work and can I ride it and is it safe for the salmon and can I ride it? And according to the company who invented the salmon cannon, whose name is, get this, Woosh innovations. The answers are yes, no, yes, I'm sorry humans just don't fit in the tube, yes, and okay fine, just don't tell mom. According to Woosh, the ride feels just like swimming in water to the salmon. The salmon cannon is a newer technology, but lots of dams actually use a salmon ladder, presumably named after the obstacle on American Ninja Warrior. 
The salmon ladder basically breaks the trip up a dam into little easy-to-climb waterfalls, allowing the salmon a more natural path up. And while ladders and cannons often cost a few million dollars to install, a few million dollars extra per dam to preserve a multi-billion dollar industry and a culturally and ecologically irreplaceable species doesn't sound too bad. The government could consider subsidizing ladders and cannons for companies constructing dams or even mandating some salmon transport mechanism or a combination. Some dams can also threaten the young salmon swimming downstream, so it may be worth considering similar mechanisms to protect the young fish as well. We can also make improvements to our hatcheries, as Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife's Hatchery Systems Manager Eric Kinn explains. Fish in Washington State, most of them are adipose fin clipped to determine that they're hatchery fish. So you can have selective fisheries on those fish as they return. So you're not affecting the, the wild stocks as greatly as it has in the past. Clipping the adipose fins of hatchery fish has made fisheries able to more easily identify them when they're harvested, but the strategy has a lot of critics. For one, some biologists suggest that clipping the fin is harmful to salmon, equating it to chopping off a human's hand or having a restaurant host tell you that there aren't any booths but he can sit you at a table. And many argue that spending millions of dollars to clip fins each year is a misallocation of funds, since it just makes it easier to identify hatchery salmon, it doesn't actually protect wild ones. Like Kim considering divorcing Kanye, all the solutions I've discussed so far don't really fix the root causes of the problems. But fixing some of the root causes takes a lot of time, and with endangered species, time is limited. Climate change, for example, would still take decades or even centuries to reset even if we stopped emitting carbon today. And one of our best and cheapest carbon-free energy sources is hydropower, which requires hydroelectric dams. While some of these problems are now stuck in a loop, there are still plenty of options. Since many salmon species are on the endangered species list, the United States has invested considerable sums of money to protect them. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service works with local landowners to restore habitats, hatcheries to improve practices, and fisheries to release more than 200 million endangered fish per year back into the water to conserve the species. And the 1976 Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act implemented a Fish Stock Sustainability Index, which is used to determine when stocks are overfished and apply regional and individual catch limits. And as impressive as all that is, according to the Wild Salmon Center president, Guido Rar, that's just the start of salmon conservation solutions. We're stuck in this cycle where we're investing hundreds of millions of dollars in recovering the most endangered populations, but we're not doing much to prevent the ones that are in relatively good shape from becoming endangered. And that's our challenge. RAR advocates setting aside funds to protect not just the endangered populations, but populations in areas like Bristol Bay, Alaska, which are referred to as salmon strongholds, where the wild populations are still thriving. If we were to set aside parts of Bristol Bay, for example, as salmon conservation areas and protect the ecosystems from chemical runoff or dams or Michael Scott's car, we would prevent those species from going endangered, which would ensure that we don't ever fail to protect the species and run out one day, and we potentially save money in the long run. If you remember from earlier, Bristol Bay is the location of the proposed pebble mine, meaning the mine would be threatening one of the only salmon strongholds left in the Pacific. With the sheer number of threats facing wild salmon, I know it can feel daunting. 
especially when conserving the species requires working together across states, across international boundaries, and with several Native American tribes, all of whom bring a lot of knowledge and experience to the table, as well as a lot of passion for which solutions they like and don't like, often disagreeing with the solutions preferred by the hatcheries who might disagree with the fishermen or the state or the federal government. And while the conversations are difficult, that passion gives me hope. Whether you're a salmon lover like myself, don't like salmon, or you're an Alaskan who needs salmon to avoid having to drop 50 bucks on a lean cuisine, you are affected by the fate of wild salmon. They're not just a keystone species in the freshwater ecosystem, but they're a keystone species to our economy, our diets, and our culture. And if you can't see that, then... I think you're a plank. Do you run an environmental podcast with producers living in Connecticut, New Jersey, and Puerto Rico? If so, Hurricane Isa Es is for you. First, it'll hit your technical producer in Puerto Rico during a week where you have three calls with experts and he needs to edit and upload an episode, forcing him to use his mobile hotspot to do it. Then it'll hit the host of this podcast and the producer who's reading this ad, making the host lose power on the day he was supposed to record today's monologue and interview another expert. How convenient. Hurricane Isa Ias, making environmental communication more urgent and a lot harder. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Sima Eben, a professor of agricultural and resource economics at University of Connecticut and the Connecticut Sea Grant Research Coordinator. Dr. Eben, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me here. It's, you know, an honor. These coastal states like Washington really rely on hydropower for energy, and it is a renewable energy source. It's not emitting carbon, but it is affecting salmon populations. And I was wondering, how do we reconcile that? Is there more harm than good? Is there more good than harm? Are there ways to generate the hydropower and reduce the impact on salmon while getting clean energy? Or what do we make of this? You know, that's a great question. So, you know, dams really are, you know, especially now, maybe more important because they're greenhouse gas free in their production of electricity, as you said, you know, they offer recreational opportunities and flood control and they're used in irrigation in parts of California and Oregon and and Washington. So pretty important for that. So, you know, they have an important place. They produce, I think it's roughly just under 20% of worldwide electricity. Uh, Having said that, you know, I worked as a harvest manager, salmon management biologist for years. And so the impacts of those dams are impressive. Those dams do things like just impound water. So they create a lake on one side uh, and that lake is not necessarily the proper habitat. Downstream, they decrease the water flow. They can also decrease the sediment flow. And so if you go to a river like the Elwha, which had two, two or three dams and you're at the mouth of that, you'll see that what once may have been a sandy beach is now giant cobbles. And those fine sediments have just been eroded away and there's no more source of those sediments. So, you know, for shellfish, it, it impacts that as well. From a salmon's point of view, you know, probably there, there are a few different impacts, but one of the biggest is probably just blocking the area that they're migrating up to their spawning habitat. And the earliest dams had no way around this and they were big main stem dams had huge vertical changes in elevation. And so basically salmon were just blocked from getting upstream. And I've heard estimates, you know, maybe these are off at this point, but that 96% of the salmon on say the Columbia River 
were basically killed by these dams. So you know, you're just getting a small proportion that are actually able to survive. Since we've learned more about the impacts of dams, ways, you know, fish ladders and elevators and lifts, and so they've been able to work around some of these impediments. But still, you have issues where, you know, the water flows are different. Salmon evolved with a spring freshet where you'd have water that was in the, you know, the mountains upriver that was frozen, would melt, and you'd get a big pulse of, of water in the spring, and that would help those juvenile salmon migrate out to sea. When you have a dam, the dam operators want to, you know, maintain that water so they can maintain electrical production. You don't want like a, a big boost of electricity in March, say, and then less electricity in July. So this is problematic for the salmon if you have a, a change in the flow regime. Uh, and also, you know, that impounded water tends to warm up. Salmon are cold water species. Warm water holds less oxygen. Personally, <laughs> I am, I think, you know, big main stem dams are, are pretty destructive of the salmon and, and other problems. Uh, if we want to work around that, there are smaller in-stream type of hydro devices that can be used that don't block the whole main stem. So you can just have a uh, impoundments that maybe just take up a bit of a channel and not the entire channel. Due to climate change, we know salmon have been moving north to cooler waters uh, since all the water is warming up. And for states like Washington and Oregon, does that mean we could see salmon disappear from the local ecosystem or would we just see reductions in numbers? Well, you know, we're already seeing that in California, which is the southern extent of salmon, the first salmon to be listed in the U.S. was the Sacramento Winter King. So, you know, that is, you know, a critically endangered salmon species. And salmon, let me say, is more than one species. It's a, it's a genus. But, um, you know, we are seeing that erosion of, say, for king salmon, Yonkarinkus choicha which is that one that was listed. Since then, we've had many, many others listed, unfortunately. And at the same time, we're seeing salmon now in bigger numbers in places they've never been before in the Arctic Ocean, Beaufort Sea, Mackenzie River. So we, we are seeing that range move north. And oftentimes you get big droughts, summer droughts rather associated in the Pacific Northwest. When I lived there, we had a big El Nino. And those types of droughts are really devastating for the salmon. And the flip side of that is that bigger, more frequent types of, of precipitation events, so-called rain bombs, these words we never even knew before. And that can also have an impact on, on the salmon where you have flooding and salmon can end up in places that are no longer hydrologically connected to the sea, right? You're in a, a cornfield and, you know, that may be okay when the water's high, but when the water recedes, the salmon may be stuck in this cornfield. So I hope they don't leave the Pacific Northwest, but that could very well be what eventually happens. But there's a host of other changes. Ocean acidification is changing, you know, the prey items that they, you know, rely on at different points in their life, you know, especially anything that's kind of has a shell, any kind of crustaceans, which salmon do depend on and give them that lovely pink color and orangey pink. And then, you know, obviously with that warming water, less oxygen again. So, you know, a number of different impacts on those salmon. And another downside to add to that list is when we talk about the 1974 case, United States versus Washington, which reserved the right of Native American tribes in Washington to co-manage the fisheries and have access to 50% of the catch. And if the salmon are leaving, then that 50% would be a lot less than it used to be. And 
And I was wondering, is that 50-50 split fair anymore, considering that it was not the Native American populations that were nearly as responsible for the changes in the water temperature and acidification and everything that are leading to this problem? And where do we go from here? So the tribes actually did, when they filed the Bolt decision that in 1974, the so-called Bolt decision that was affirmed by the Supreme Court, um, there was a part of it that did kind of look at the habitat destruction, not at climate change, but at the fact that, you know, that the salmon run was much diminished from where it had been. It was the so-called all-citizen case, and it was also looking at interceptions of those fish by other fishermen, say, in Alaska which diminishes the amount that returns. So, you know, the court put aside, it vacated that part of the case without prejudice because it said they didn't have a good case study to push that forward. Uh, recently, the tribes have filed suit on uh, issue of culverts and poorly engineered designed place maintained culverts in Washington state that addresses a similar issue because culverts actually lead to huge amounts of mortality for salmon. And so, you know, I think that that issue, maybe not with climate change, but certainly with a role that the state has to play and maybe the federal government has to play in maintaining habitat for a viable salmon population may be required. So I know you've spoken to a lot of people up doing fishing in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm wondering how important are these fisheries for the livelihoods of both Native Americans and uh, non-Native Americans who are fishing there, kind of from an economic perspective, but also just in general? From an economic perspective, say in, in Alaska, where I worked, you know, that salmon fishing is really the main source of income outside of, say, government transfers, or at least it was. It's, it's really the critical economic input to those areas. Not only that, but it's so important for subsistence. So it's non-economic value, which you can translate into economic terms, is super important. Uh, it's, it's just a really major part of their diet. Throughout the year, salmon, as I said, is really nice and oily, so it preserves really well if you dry it. And so you can have, you know, salmon throughout the year, dried fish, as they call it. And that is, you know, has um, an economic value just because if you're in interior rural Alaska, the cost of food is very high. I know because I live there. And it also has an attached cultural and spiritual value that is you know, I guess you can monetize, but why bother? Is very, very important, you know, to these people. They, their cultures in the Pacific Northwest, in Alaska, a lot of these tribal cultures really revolve around the salmon. So it's very important. And I had, when I was doing research, say in Washington, you know, even in an area which is pretty highly developed, you know, I had fishermen, you know, tribal fishermen tell me that, you know, fishing was their church. This is, you know, what they did. They went out, out, into the, you know, the marine waters and fished. And that was what was important to them spiritually, just the act of fishing. It's also important for non-Indians, as you asked about that. Uh, certainly, you know, commercial fisheries in general have been diminishing. And so it's, it's very difficult to fish one species, one fishery and make a living. Although, you know, certainly some folks go to Bristol Bay in, in the summer and make a killing. But uh, a lot of fishermen do have to kind of hold multiple permits and enter multiple fisheries with different gears. 
Moving forward, what steps do fishery managers need to take or need to consider to adapt to these new challenges? And are there policy solutions that could potentially help them either by mitigating these issues or helping them adapt to them? Salmon fisheries for a long time were managed on the basis of maximum sustainable yield. So theoretically, it was decided that you could take these fish and that some portion, usually about 50% of, of carrying capacity, could be harvested sustainably each year and allow enough to spawn, to reproduce, to carry on the um, population uh, at a sustainable level. You know, the thing that is lacking from that is just this idea that our systems human, natural, are very dynamic. And so managing anything for some kind of stability is just not going to work. We have to kind of embrace uncertainty. We have to realize that there's a fallibility. This idea that we can manage it all, we, we need to really think rethink. <laughs> and um, so that's one part of it. Um, we can also kind of Rechange our thinking so that we eat kind of I'm actually let me just say I'm on the board of a group called the eating with the ecosystem uh, and that tries to align our eating with what ecosystems are producing in terms of seafood consumption and so there's a principle that they promote called symmetry where you eat in proportion to what an ecosystem produces right now you know when you go to restaurants when you go to a supermarket, there are certain types of seafood that are always there. But seafood are also seasonal and they're, you know, salmon come in in the summer. And if we demand salmon all the time at every restaurant, then those restaurateurs, they go towards uh, farmed salmon uh, just to keep the supply constant. Uh, and But if we were flexible enough to adapt to changing availability of species, we would be able to eat in kind of a reflection of what's being produced. Dr. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I think this is a, a good endeavor that you guys are working on. So I want to thank you. I hope uh, you can track your listenership. I tell my students that, you know, we're gifting this world to this new generation and it's up to you guys really to kind of take it forward. So, you know, I, I want to applaud you for doing this. Thank you so much. That means a lot. This wraps up episode 13 of The Sweaty Penguin. Thank you again to Sima Eben for her insights. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll see you there. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown and Dane Kim, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.